This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I don't know whether you noticed, there's an election going on. <laughs> the whole world is noticing and watching, and frankly, laughing at us. Tuesday, October 7th, there will be a statewide special election. We're going to talk a bit about that today. In fact, in our second segment, we'll be joined by Leonard Padilla, running for governor as an independent. Leonard Padilla is well known to, um, I think, most residents in the Sacramento area. He's been the frequent subject of pieces in the Sacramento News and Review, the Sacramento Bee, various of our local television outlets. He's been written about in the Christian Science Monitor. Leonard Padilla is a bounty hunter by trade. He's the founder and president of the Lorenzo Patino Law School. Uh, rest assured, he will give us an interesting interview in the second segment, and you should stay tuned for that. And on tomorrow's program of public affairs here on, here on KDVS 90.3 FM, you will have a chance to hear Mr. Ward Connerly, a regent of the University of California, who has been spearheading the effort to carry over Prop 54 in this current election. Prop 54 has to do with whether the government can decide what race you belong to. You've all seen on those various um, forms you're given, a little box to mark under race. Well, um, affirmative action has been eliminated in the University of California thanks to Prop 209, another effort by Mr. Connerly. This is his attempt to further close the loopholes in this area. Uh, he is a very interesting man and will give a very interesting talk tomorrow on Steve Valentino's program, Stop Making Sense. We were able to speak with Mr. Connolly for a few moments, but I think what we will do is um, defer that to next week's program when we'll talk at greater length about Proposition 54. But really, the single biggest story that catches my eye this week, Edward Teller dead at 95. Edward Teller was without any doubt one of the most influential scientists in 20th century America. Edward Teller is called, with good reason, the father of the hydrogen bomb, a term he hated. But the truth of the matter is, had Edward Teller not pushed the United States government to develop a hydrogen bomb it's entirely possible there would be no H-bombs in the world. No matter how you look at it, that is a momentous thing. I'm not prepared to talk about the death of Edward Teller at great length today, but I have studied the man and his history and the history of the hydrogen bomb at some length, and I will be giving you a detailed uh, uh, review of what this all meant either next week or the week after that. But uh, I do find it fascinating that after Edward Teller pretty much single-handedly brought the H-bomb into the world, earning him the title of father of the H-bomb. He then decided, some 30 years later, after the H-bomb became a reality, that the U.S. needed protection against the H-bomb and that we should develop a missile defense shield to counter his original invention. We've now spent literally hundreds of billions of dollars on the Strategic Defense Initiative, something that's never going to work, frankly which something like 20 or 30 Nobel laureates in physics have come out and said will never work, to counter the original invention of the hydrogen bomb. Um, 
Some say that Terry Southern, when he invented the character of Doctor Strange, loved to use Teller as a uh, as a model. He may have been also the model for uh, the Felix Honecker character in Kurt Vonnegut's classic novel, Cat's Cradle. We'll be getting back to Teller in the future, but uh, really, his death uh, really marks the end of an era. Now, one guy worthy of a, of a minute of commentary on in the election is Tom McClintock. McClintock, with the withdrawal of Peter Uberoth, is pretty much the conservative Republicans' uh, last hope in this election. He's now spearheading an effort to recall the recently passed bill signed by Governor Gray Davis last week, allowing illegal immigrants to obtain driver's licenses. Well, McClintock and the conservative Republicans think this is a terrible idea. We shouldn't let illegal aliens legally drive, even though what it means is when you have a driver's license, you can then obtain auto insurance. Apparently having a lot of unlicensed and uninsured illegal immigrants driving around California highways is a good idea to hear Tom McClintock and the conservative Republicans tell it. What do you think? I think that's pretty nuts. Now, some of you may have noticed the U.S. economy is rather sluggish as we're proceeding to borrow 400 to 500 billion dollars. The quote, I think, of the month from last month, I'm saving. This is from the week, August 15th. The quote of the month, economic theory. President Bush came up with a new reason for the sluggish business climate in the country. Quote, remember on our TV scenes, I'm not suggesting which network did this, but it said march to war every day. That's not a very conducive environment for people to take risks when they hear march to war all the time. So there you have it. The media reporting us marching off to war in Iraq with the march to war is giving people a gloomy outlook on life. Bush himself, of course, is willing to take no credit for having pushed the war. Mr. McMillan, can you resurrect that appropriate sound effect? Second best quote, White House spokesman Scott McClellan on accusations that the Bush administration manipulates science for political ends. Quote, this administration looks at the facts and reviews the best available science based on what's right for the American people, unquote. Well, it turns out that the U.S. government's EPA assured people in New York that the air was just fine to breathe after September 11th. Well, it turns out... San Francisco Chronicle, front page, Wednesday, September 10th. Ground zero air quality was brutal for months. UC Davis professor, Dr. Thomas Cahill, professor emeritus of physics and atmospheric science, headed the scientific team that studied the aerosols from the fuming site in lower Manhattan and said, actually, the air was quite terrible. It turns out it was exposed in the New York Daily News some time ago. The EPA felt it was good for Wall Street to reopen and minimize the economic impact of September 11th. Therefore, the facts were fitted to the need at hand. We've put a call in to Dr. Cahill, and hopefully we'll be able to get him to come on to the show and talk about uh, what the facts would tell us about the air in lower Manhattan in the wake of 9-11 and the political ramifications of the government misrepresenting the truth. You guys probably hate when I do this, but for the last time today, I'm going to mention a story that we don't have time to go to in go through in detail, but we will in a future show. I just want to mention, had you been listening to Radio Parallax six months ago, you'd have heard us tell you that this whole idea of vaccinating against smallpox was a bunch of BS that had more to do with the upcoming war in Iraq and pretending there was a huge threat from weapons of mass destruction, including bioweapons like smallpox, than could be justified by 
intelligence. Well, the U.S. plan to vaccinate nearly a half million healthcare workers in the U.S. against smallpox has ground to a halt. Doctors and nurses have stayed away in droves for good reason. There never was much of a threat to smallpox, and had it, had it broken out somewhere, we have 500,000 military people who were able to vaccinate and contain the disease. This was a very stupid idea. We told you about it, and it looks in the, in the wake of what we found in Iraq, mainly no weapons of mass destruction, that we were right. We'll come back to that one. We've got a backlog of science topics that I really um, am looking forward to going over with you. We're going to do that just straight away here. But first, as we like to do, let's go to our email and pull out um, an email from Sharon regarding newspaper readers in the United States. And this is probably worth going over. You may have seen this, but I like this one. Newspaper readers in the U.S. The Wall Street Journal says this email is read by the people who run the country. I think that's true. The Washington Post is read by people who think they run the country. I think that's also true. The New York Times is read by people who think they should run the country. (laughs) I can't vouch for that one. But I'm pretty sure that this one's right. USA Today is read by people who think they ought to run the country but don't really understand the Washington Post. They do, however, like their statistics shown in convenient pie chart format. The Los Angeles Times is read by people who wouldn't mind running the country if they could spare the time and if they didn't have to leave L.A. to do it. The Boston Globe is read by people whose parents used to run the country and they did a far superior job of it. Thank you very much. The New York Daily News is read by people who aren't too sure who's running the country and don't really care as long as they can get a seat on the train. Rupert Murdoch's New York Post is read by people who don't care who's running the country as long as they do something really scandalous, preferably while intoxicated. The San Francisco Chronicle is read by people who aren't sure there is a country or that anyone is running it. And the Miami Herald is run by people who are running another country but like to read the baseball scores. Lastly, the National Enquirer is generally read by people trapped in line in the grocery store. Now, uh, while I was overseas, and I'm not sure I'm going to get to that story about searching for the planet Mars uh, through a big telescope in South America today, but if I don't, rest assured we'll get to it next week. But while I was overseas, I was following events at home here as seen through uh, the International Herald Tribune and various um, television outlets, which by and large the same media giants that provide television to us. That would be uh, we Yanks here in the U.S. of A. And by the way, if you have any comments about what you hear in this program, feel free to mail us at info at radioparallax.com. And uh, check out the website while you're doing that. Now, I want to quote here the August 28th International Herald, which I picked up when I think I guess I was in uh, Argentina at that point. Headline, U.S. softens stance on U.N. role in Iraq. Next headline, Bush aid floats the idea of allowing multinational force under Americans. Now, apparently, uh, Richard Armitage and uh, I guess Donald Rumsfeld and and all these people in a government are thinking that, you know, this going into Iraq thing alone, you know, thumbing our nose at those Euro weenies, the French and the Germans. um, Well, uh, now that we're there and now that we aren't able to pacify things maybe quite as easily as we said we were going to, 
well, maybe it's now time that we're going to let, we're going to let our allies come in and help us. We may not let them run, you know, we're going to still run things, but we're going to let them commit money and troops. Um, I'm not sure where Donald Rumsfeld or others got this idea, but I think maybe they, you know, were reading too much Tom Sawyer. I mean, picture this. The U.S. is going to go to our allies and say, well, you know, we'd like to let you whitewash this fence. We'd like to let you help us whitewash this fence, but we enjoy whitewashing. We enjoy using this brush, and we feel we're the only ones that can do it right, and we're not sure we can trust you. And that uh, this reverse psychology of this scam is going to get France and Germany to go, oh, come on, let us. We'd love to whitewash this fence with you. I don't know. As comedian Will Durst would say, you know, you just can't make this kind of stuff up. Who is thinking that's going to work? Well, I mean, so far, no takers from our allies. I wonder why. Let's do a few science topics. Now, in my real life, I am a medical doctor. They did a very interesting study down in Australia. Apparently, Graham Giles of the Cancer Council of Victoria, which is located in Melbourne, Australia, informed New Scientist magazine that they, apparently, men could do their prostate a favor by spending some quality time alone. Apparently, frequent masturbation may protect against prostate cancer, said the scientist. They questioned 1,079 men who had prostate cancer, asked them about their sexual habits, and compared their answers with those of 1,259 healthy men. It turned out the more the men ejaculated between the ages of 20 and 50, the less likely they were to develop prostate cancer. Men who ejaculated more than five times a week had about a third of the cancer risk of men who ejaculated the least. Now, they speculate as to why that may be, and I think that's just pure speculation at this point, but you know, there seems to be some compelling evidence here that masturbation is a normal activity. At least Mr. Giles noted that to the uh, Cancer Council in Australia and said that if the habit can also be shown to be healthy and beneficial, why not? Why not indeed? Here's a recap of one we talked about a few months ago. Scientists at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the Paris Observatory in France are surprised by the fact that out on the planet Pluto that the atmosphere seems to be warming up, even though Pluto got to its closest part to the sun four years ago. Well, as we said on this show, duh, the hottest day in California is not on the longest day of the year. It comes afterwards. The same phenomenon is taking place on Pluto. It's closer to the sun right now. It's warming up. It's still closer, even though it's getting further away. And so, uh, you know, I'm surprised that people are surprised by this. The planet Mars also is, um, you know, we've now lapped it on the inside and we are receding from it. We would emphasize that it's still a stunning view out in your nighttime sky. Please go out and take a look. And it's going to be first class observations. It's going to be first class observing through a telescope throughout the month of September. So even though it did make its closest pass uh, a week and a half ago, if you still have a chance to get out there with a telescope, do so. And uh, rest assured, we're going to have more to say on that topic. 
because uh, just to reiterate briefly, I traveled down to Rio de Janeiro and Buenos Aires to get a look through a telescope at the planet Mars under superior viewing conditions, and, um, well, the word fiasco comes to mind, and, um, well, again, we'll talk, we'll talk about that one later. Now we have some more science from down under the equator. Uh, not just, uh, you know, uh, Australians uh, concerned about masturbating or yours truly running around trying to look through a telescope, but uh, researchers in New Zealand, the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, researcher Satoshi Kanazawa looked back at the lives of famous scientists or successful scientists looked through the lives of 280 of these individuals throughout history and found out something interesting. When they got married, their creativity apparently dried up. Yes, two-thirds of the scientists made their most significant contributions to science before they hit their mid-30s and before they were married. Once the men settled down, they seemed to lose their edge, while unmarried scientists continued to make great scientific contributions. Well, gentlemen... Uh, Could it be that young men looking to make their mark, uh, you know, you fellas out there may want to hold off those wedding plans? I don't know. Um, There's speculation, and it's just speculation, that this may have something to do uh, with, uh, you know, the testosterone-driven nature of the uh, male of the species out there trying to impress women with their virtuosity, which uh, pushes them to accomplish more. The, uh, The study's author, Kanazawa, said that, well, men do whatever they do in order to get sex at least as quoted in the London Daily Mail, but as they grow older, the competitive urge to excel declines. Well, I'm not sure it's fair to blame this on getting married, but um, it's interesting. Now, another article in New Scientist. I must say that I found it rather refreshing to leave the country and not be inundated with news about what J-Lo and Ben Affleck have been up to, about what... Sean P. Diddy Puff Daddy whatever has been up to uh, what uh, you know Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt have been up to I was kind of glad to get a vacation from that because these guys publicists seem to be shoving this down our throats but you know what when you turn on a television south of the border you get the same celebrities these people in Argentina are being told about what Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are up to because Well, people seem interested. The New Scientist magazine found this celebrity worship uh, worthy of some scientific study and uh, came up with some interesting conclusions. Apparently, Lynn McCutcheon from DeVries University in Orlando, Florida, and another psychologist, James Horan, from Southern Illinois University School of Medicine in Springfield, devised a celebrity attitude scale and then tried to evaluate um, what celebrity worship, what that meant. And they came to some interesting conclusions. Celebrity worship seems to be just about everywhere. It's not uh, either pathological or non-pathological. It's sort of a sliding scale to the whole thing. Um, They speculate there's very good biological reason for celebrity worship. In the old days, people who were successful, good hunters, good whatever, were people worth imitating. It paid attention to see who was doing well in life because, well it might be worth imitating what they were up to. In a modern world of electronic communications, we've sort of substituted a personal familiarity with someone who may be worth imitating with, um, you know, movie stars. 
But what I find curious is that all of these publicists, uh, you know, and celebrities, agents, marketing people have tapped into is something that um, evolutionary biologists might, uh, you know, classify as something that's innate and useful. Uh, the, the strange thing comes in our modern world when this uh, sort of ever-increasing realism of the electronic media means that people are sort of duped into thinking that what they're having is a relationship with these celebrities. Hence the phenomenon of stalking, um, etc. I don't know. My feeling is if I can just get some quality time one-on-one with Jodie Foster, she'll see you know, that, that I'm the guy for her. Oh, my uh, sound engineer just pointed out to me that may require a sex change operation on my part. Ooh, boy, the best laid plans of mice and men. Interview in the uh, New Scientist magazine, August 30th, worthy of a minute or two of mention, uh, with Richard Bentel, a clinical psychologist. Mr. Uh, Dr. Bentel took a look at uh, the drugs we use on psychiatric patients and some of the, the um, assumptions we make about treatment and came to the conclusion that a lot of what we do is no, a lot of the categorization that goes on is rather meaningless. And he finds them to be remarkably similar to star signs saying that just because people think the star sign says something about them uh, and what they will happen to do in the future doesn't necessarily make it so. So, too, with some of our psychological classifications. Uh, that's something we talked about at great length in a show last September. And, uh, you know, I think Mr. Richard, Dr. Richard Bentel uh, has a point. Dr. Bentel was rather hot about the fact, uh, about the rather scandalous fact, that... Uh, Neuroleptic drugs, drugs first discovered in the late 1940s and in wide use by the 1950s, uh, never really had appropriate dosage studies published until the 1990s. And it turned out that low doses work at least as well as high doses. He points out that we now consider it irrational to give a patient more than 10 milligrams of Haldol. Generally, you can get by with 5 milligrams a day. Whereas it wasn't uncommon to give patients 80 to 90 milligrams of this same drug some years ago. I uh, don't think you should take three decades to try and sort out what's an optimal dose, but uh, that's just my opinion. Another article out of the uh, New Scientist the week before, and this is the August 23rd issue, uh, there's some good news from the world of herbal medicine. Now, we've sort of had some skepticism on this program about uh, people who, you know, put great faith in herbs. Herbs are great in terms of the fact they're containing all kinds of different agents that are going to prove to be useful. One such agent um, has to do with the Chinese herb sweet wormwood, or quinghuao. They've taken extracts from this, and it has indeed been proven to be effective against the malarial parasite. These drugs uh, that they've isolated are called artemisinins. Uh, they work to uh, basically inhibit the calcium regulation in the parasite. Um, now, drug makers are really salivating over the prospect of being able to uh, extract this drug, work with it, find out how it works even better, and produce some good products uh, for you to use when you go to countries that have malaria, which are most of the countries in the tropics of the world, if not all. This is a problem. Uh, we've been using these various anti-malarial agents, and of course, the malarial bug has solved the problem of how to develop resistance to them. So again, we need uh, more tools in the, um, in the drawer, and we, we have one more. This is a good thing. 
And I, and I want to say, I, I think that using herbs for things like this are great. I mean, there's a huge reservoir of natural products out there that which science has always relied upon and always will. I, um, I've just been a little skeptical in the past about people who think that there's this big difference between an herb, which is good and wonderful and wholesome and natural, and a pill or pharmaceutically produced product, which is uh, artificial and, and therefore, you know, a bad thing. Well, it just doesn't work that way. My, my sound engineer just asked a good question here. Isn't wormwood uh, the thing they used to use in absinthe that made it so toxic? Uh, anyone out there from the uh, School of Pharmacology have an answer to that? Please uh, send us an email at info at radioparallax.com. Now, the planet Mars we mentioned uh, on this recent uh, uh, close appearance to the Earth was the size of a quarter, 600 feet away. Well, an asteroid, Davida, asteroid number 511, apparently made a recent close approach to Earth and was considerably smaller. It was the size of a quarter, 11 miles away. Yet, rather amazingly, astronomers at the Keck Observatory in Hawaii have taken fantastically clear photos, high-resolution photos, ground-based, of these asteroids. Now, this little scientific miracle, and I would advise you to go to the web to see www.numeral2.kek.hawaii.edu and see if you can't uh, uh, agree that these, this photo, these actually have a video of this spinning asteroid. It's, it's really quite amazing. But this miracle of technology is one of the scientific benefits to come from this huge rat hole of expenditures that is going into this thing called the Star Wars defense system, a system that's never going to work. Uh, you know, it, this is kind of the equivalent of, of selling you a bulletproof vest that we think might stop, well, some of the bullets that are being fired at you. Would you feel significantly safer owning a product like that if you were facing an armed assailant pointing a pistol at you? I don't think so. But anyway, using what's called adaptive optics, they're able to basically tell how the atmosphere is distorting a particular path of light coming through the atmosphere, and they're able to reverse that to develop a really clear picture of what you were seeing as if the atmosphere wasn't there. Amazing stuff. So I'm glad at least some good is coming out of this uh, missile defense nonsense. All right, lastly on this segment, I want to talk about a science article from The New Yorker magazine. Yes? The New Yorker, September 8th, 2003, has a wonderful summary of the Galileo mission by Michael Benson. It's on page 38. You ought to get a copy of this. The Galileo mission got delayed because of problems with the space shuttle. They had to reroute the mission. Basically, they decided they couldn't send up on the space shuttle because it was dangerous, a liquid rocket motor. And the solid fuel rocket booster was not going to be enough. They had to find a way to get the spacecraft out to Jupiter without using a strong rocket. The solution turned out they were going to whip it down around the planet Venus, around the Earth, and slingshot it back out to Jupiter, taking many more years than the original mission was intended, but, you know, enabling them to complete what they originally set out to do. Well... The spacecraft was never supposed to go into the inner solar system near Venus, so they built a heat shield around it. Unfortunately, when it was going back out in the cold reaches of space, they couldn't unfurl the antenna because, I guess, the heat shield got jammed. The entire mission was in, then in jeopardy. But scientists were able to save the mission by reprogramming the spacecraft and using a bit of technology on board in a novel way. 
The spacecraft at one point was going to drop an atmospheric probe into Jupiter's clouds, and while it did so, it needed a tape recorder to back up data that then slowly retransmitted back to Earth. Well, because there was a tape recorder on board, they were able to take pictures, use this old vintage 1970s reel-to-reel tape recorder to record the data, and then during lulls, slowly using the backup antenna, which was uh, like a thousandth the rate of the regular antenna, slowly trickle the data back to Earth line by line. By doing this, they were able to salvage the mission. It's a remarkable story, and I think you ought to go pick up a copy of The New Yorker and read about it. All right. We're out of time on the first segment. You've been listening to Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. Stick around for an interesting talk about election 2003 with Leonard Padilla. 